Hey, it's me, Lars Larson. Thanks for checking out my podcast, and be sure to tell a friend about The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday night. It is great to be with you, and I'll be glad to get back to your phone calls and emails shortly, but I want to talk to Dr. Mary Graybar, who's the founder of the Dissident Professional Education Project and the author of the new book, Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America, which is out today. Dr. Graybar, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Is there a quick way of summing up the 1619 Project? Because I've talked about it before on the show, but I always know, we and we have a new affiliate today in Minnesota, I want to make sure that people understand this fraudulent piece of so-called scholarship. Yes, well, it's basically history rewritten in literally black and white terms where all the black guys are good guys and all the white guys are bad guys. And, um, you know, like any kind of stereotype, that does not hold true. History is immensely complicated. And it is a kind of history that serves critical race theory quite well in order to believe in critical race theory, you have to have this kind of history supporting it, buttressing it. And this is what uh, the 1619 Project does and what I expose in debunking the 1619 Project. Is it fair to say that it essentially is the work, the scholarship of one woman who now has tenure, I guess, I think she went off to Morehouse uh, University, uh, but she she wrote a piece that essentially said America didn't start in 1776. It started in 1619, that we were uh, based on 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 slavery uh, and that slavery and racism is baked into the cake that is America today and that there's almost no way to get it out. Is that it? That's basically it's baked in. It's critical race theory. And uh, she is far from being a scholar. She is a journalist, and her beat for her entire career has been race. So she has been a race journalist, and this is an attempt to use history as propaganda to rewrite it according to this narrative that uh, our history, as you said, was founded in, or our country was founded in 1619, and it was built on the backs of slaves. And she actually uses this term, which is a communist term, slaveocracy. It's a slaveocracy, according to her. And so basically, she's created a problem that is almost insoluble, because it doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter that we fought a war between the states at one point, that we had founders who believed that all men were created equal and women, but they use the term generically. I guess pronouns get you in trouble now. Um, and that, <laughs> and that, and that, despite that, despite the Civil Rights Act of '64, despite suffrage for Black Americans so they can vote, despite the fact that Lincoln was assassinated by uh, John Wilkes Booth after he made a comment a few days before the assassination, in which he looked forward or looked to the day when black Americans would be allowed to, to vote and have full suffrage. And, and John, John Wilkes Booth said he must be run through, despite all of that history that is still in there and there's no getting rid of it. So this creates a permanent victimocracy? Uh, yes, you could call it that. I mean, it's the classic way of the revolutionists. So if you don't have a complete utopia, uh, you know, immediate uh, equality, equity, actually, 
uh, then you have failed, and the alternative is a revolution. So that's what she tries to do, and the other writers that contribute to it try to do. They try to stir up discontent and uh, to make school children who are being taught this dissatisfied, not believing their eyes when they look around and they see, you know, that um, there are black congressmen, senators, uh, businessmen in every facet of life. Um, so that's what it, it attempts to do, to stir up discontent and to inspire a revolution. And it's tearing the country apart, isn't it? Yes, of course it is. Um, this is being taught in a second grade. Um, you know, I, I'm the mother of an adult son, and I know from experience when you put little kids together, they don't care what nationality each other is. They don't care what race they are. They care about their common interests, whether they like trucks or, you know, dolls or whatever. Um, But this is introducing this uh, difference into the classroom, making kids look at each other with suspicious eyes uh, to see the white kid as an oppressor because, of course, according to Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator uh, we have racism in our DNA, and the uh, black kid is supposed to see himself as a victim of this white kid. So how can we get along when people look at each other that way from the time they're small children? Well, and, and see, Dr. Gray, I'm talking to Dr. Mary Graybar. She's got a brand new book out, the Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. Imagine what would have happened to, say, Dr. Ben Carson who grew up as a poor kid, uh, his brother, uh, he and his brother lived in a poor household. Mom had very little education. Uh, as I understand uh, what Dr. Carson has told me, could barely read, but she insisted that her kids hit the books hard, and he becomes a, 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 a pediatric neurosurgeon, a certified smart guy, a, a brain surgeon, uh, and goes on to be a cabinet secretary. Imagine if he'd been telling himself from about age five, I'm a victim Everything around me is engineered against me, and there's no way I can ever achieve anything. Oh, yes, and he has talked about that, and he's spoken out against the 1619 Project. Uh, it's, it's a demoralization project. It's intended to uh, make Americans doubt their own abilities in order that a new form of government would come in so that we wouldn't be a nation of independent citizens who vote and participate in the political process and live independently, but that we would be in this kind of socialistic uh, nanny state, which is what the creator, Nicole Hannah-Jones, has repeatedly advocated for. She praises Marxism uh, Fidel Castro, Cuba, um, and uh, her politics are of the squad of the Democratic Party. So uh, that is the purpose, and it is absolutely toxic. Dr. Mary Graybar, born in Slovenia, grew up in Rochester, uh, authors debunking the 1619 Project. Dr. Graybar, I'm glad you're part of the effort to try and save this country from going the way of so many other countries on this planet that have gone the wrong direction and their citizens have less freedom because of it. I appreciate the time. Thank you. It is a pleasure to have you on. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'll get to your calls and emails and all that a bit later. But I have the distinct pleasure of having on the show Major General Jeffrey Schlosser, who is the former commanding general of the 101st Airborne and the Regional Command East, uh, with a, a memoir about war and fighting and combat in Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan called Marathon War. When we left off, you were mentioning these airplanes full of people. One of them in particular, there's a picture of a C-17 Globemaster, which is a cargo plane for the most part. It's not really designed to carry people the way it did in the last seven days, but it's packed with, I think the number was 640 people. And General, it seems that in uh, Taliban culture, apparently women and children first is not the rule when you're loading up to get out of town. You know, uh, Lars, uh, you know, it, it's a stunning picture, obviously. And, and it is, frankly, upsetting to see uh, as many young males on there as there are uh, um, women and children. Uh, it's hard for me to fathom how that exactly happened. Uh, my guess would be is from what I understand is, is that a lot of those people had not been vetted. Um, you know, through the State Department system or through anybody. They were just managed to get on board that aircraft, and uh, they decided to take them all off, and then they would vet them at, uh, wherever they landed. Uh, you know, uh, they did not come to the United States, by the way. Um, and so, yeah, it's a little disturbing to see that. Uh, I, you know, the culture is an ancient culture. I was surprised, though, because the truth is, is uh, over there, uh, every boy and man is, you know, taught to uh, wield a gun. And uh, their number one responsibility is uh, what's called Pashtun Wali, which is basically a code of revenge or a code of blood that, uh, you know, if anybody takes anything from you, you're going to take it right on back. Or if they kill somebody from your family, you're going to go kill them. Frankly, it was very upsetting, or at least it's disturbing to see that picture because it, uh, you, you have to shake your head and say, how did that happen? General, let me ask you about one of the other disturbing pictures that's both in words and in pictures coming in the last week or so. Uh, the Taliban typically armed with, say, AK-47s or knockoffs from China. A lot of these folks, these fighters, who, uh, you know, is it, uh, they're part of a terrorist organization, are now carrying what, I mean, I own a couple of AR-15s, but I don't know anything like a military full auto. Uh, but these guys are carrying around about $10,000 worth of hardware in their hands, fully equipped, military-grade, paid-for-by-the-U.S. taxpayer, weapons with top-end scopes and, and everything else. We've actually uparmed all of these people because of the way this was carried out. I'd like your comments on that. Yeah, I, uh, let me just uh, help elaborate on that. So we transferred to the Afghan army and taught them how to use uh, modern-day weaponry. Um, not extraordinarily, uh, you know, advanced stuff. We're not talking about missiles and things of that nature, but we did transfer, you know, both vehicles that were very capable, Humvees and then, you know, MRAPs, uh, you know, that could avoid IED uh, damage. But probably more importantly, small arms up to automatic weapons, just as you've noted, uh, Lars, with scopes and sighting capability. And, oh, by the way, they just happened to capture also some aircraft out of the uh, Afghan Air Force. The majority of the Air Force tried to uh, get those aircraft to uh, neighboring countries so that they could at least make sure they did not fall in the Taliban hands. There was some success there. One got shot down by mistake in Uzbekistan, from what I understand. Anyway, they do have Blackhawks. You ought to, people ought to recognize that. Those are made here in the United States. They do have uh, MI-17s that were formerly made either in the Ukraine or Poland or Russia. Um, and they have uh, Super Nakanos, which are made here uh, both in Brazil and then uh, modified in the United States, which are fixed-wing at, uh, ground attack aircraft. 
I don't think the Taliban know how to operate some amount of that fairly uh, sophisticated aircraft. Uh, but they knew how to operate the guns, the automatic weapons, and they got boatloads of ammo that they captured uh, when these army units gave up. They went from being a fairly lightly armed uh, insurgency as they now form an army for the Taliban in whatever they're going to call their state in Afghanistan. And it's going to be a fairly capable and fairly well-armed army. General Schlosser is the author of Marathon War. General, can it, we, we at least take some small comfort that most of that aircraft, without the kind of maintenance that it takes, sometimes a lot more hours in maintenance than, in, than they spend in the air, can we take some small comfort that most of that stuff will be unflyable fairly soon or, or not? Will yes. the Taliban be able to maintain yes. uh, that all those assets? I think that uh, you know they will try their very best at the point of, gun, a gunpoint, uh, to uh, those uh, maintainers and those pilots from the Afghan Air Force that were not able to get out of the country. Because uh, believe me, they were the ones that have been assassinated the most over the last year. Uh, the Taliban feared them. As we stopped flying air support, the Afghan Air Corps has ratcheted up their game, uh, and uh, they've been lethal on the battlefield. And so the Taliban would hunt them down, hunt down their families, lie in, uh, in wait, and then kill uh, the pilots and the maintainers. At gunpoint, if there's any of them left, they will be forced to fly. Um, but the truth is is that uh, they don't have the competence to maintain those, those aircraft, um, the Blackhawks, the, you know, the Cessna uh, caravans that are armed, uh, the Super Decanos, uh fixed wing, they do not have that capability. And they, those will eventually just grind, grind to a halt. Um, they will be able to operate, I believe, MI-17s. This is a Russian equivalent of a it's 50-year-old technology. It can be maintained with uh, duct tape and some uh, baling wire. Um <laughs> And, uh, and it will continue to fly. It's, it's not very sophisticated, but it will do the job. So we'll see that. I mean, what I would say, Lars, though, is, is that the Taliban have proven to have a very sophisticated uh, public relations media team. You know, what you're going to see on videos and what you're going to see on Instagram and all this other stuff is going to be part of the images that they want to show. I will bet within a few days' time you're going to see a picture of a Blackhawk with the white Islamic uh, Emirate of Afghanistan flag painted on the side to make us all think that they are now flying around in Blackhawks. Could be the same thing with the Super Tacano. But I, I agree with you that within just a handful of days, maybe a month or two, most of those aircraft will be unflyable. And God knows we're not going to send them any more parts uh, and uh, no capability to uh, uh, to fix the, the broken ones. General Schlosser is the author of Marathon War, Leadership Combat in Afghanistan. Let me ask you this. General, for the average person in, in uniform, theirs is an apolitical job. You do what your superior officers tell you to do. But when you get to the level of major general, as you did, it becomes a bit political because your higher-ups, when you know a few levels above you, uh, become uh, the defense secretary, a civilian, and the president. With that in mind... Um, I want I want to ask you about Trump's plan to leave Afghanistan because we're being t- the major media is saying look Trump was going to leave Biden's going to leave not much difference and a, a lot of us I'm I'm an unabashed Trump fan would say well hold on President Trump said there will be a set of conditions if you deviate from them he he said last night in an interview that he told the leader of the Taliban that he was negotiating with I know where your village is, and you will be hit hard if you deviate from this plan. 
Would that approach, had it been carried out either by Donald Trump or by Joe Biden when he came in, to say we will pull out, but we will do it with you meeting some preconditions. If you step out of line, the deal is off. Did that have the potential to work the way it was intended? I believe so. Uh, what's, let me elaborate for a second. Sure. When you when you make an agreement with somebody that you can't totally trust, you have to, you know, again, for all of our listeners, what you do is you set a series of milestones. The first ones to do this, we'll do that. If you do this, then we'll consider doing that, Third, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to verify that they actually get done. It's not just a thing where they say, yes, we understand, and then they go do something completely different. You can verify on the ground, right? And yep. so, yeah, the previous administration said exactly that's what they were going to do. Uh, this next administration, as they came in here, I mean, it looks like they ignored any kind of preconditions. Major General Jeffrey Slosser is the author of Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. If I can talk him into another segment, we will do that. We'll be back in just a moment, and then I'll go to your calls and emails. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, but I have the distinct pleasure of having with me Major General Jeffrey Schlosser, who is the author of Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. Now, we've been talking about the fact that the plan to tell the Taliban uh, the plan laid out by Donald Trump, uh, where Joe Biden says, we came in and there was no plan. There was a plan, and you and I have discussed it, that was, tell the Taliban, you want something from us, you want us out of Afghanistan. Okay, you have to meet certain milestones, work with the sitting government, with uh, uh, Ashraf Ghani, uh, the president, who's now fled the country in a helicopter full of money, I might mention, probably U.S. taxpayer dollars to a large extent, but... We had a plan. Joe Biden said, I, I want out. Uh, first, he put September 11th as, a, as a, an outdate, which seemed really dumb as a bag of hammers. But, General, um, I want to know how much of this could, we, could Biden have, have avoided screwing up? His intelligence people now say, well, they're leaking out. We told him that this could fall apart quickly. The president on July the 8th said, I've been told it won't fall apart uh, quickly. And so either he's lying or the intel people are lying or a little bit of both. Um, but should the president have been willing to say, this president, Biden, should he have been willing to say, look, if if things aren't going well, we're just going to stay in place until we can exit the way we plan to exit. And what was the rush? Do you have any inkling as to why the president said we're out no matter what and it doesn't matter the consequences, which, by the way, as you and I are talking right now, is thousands of American potential hostages who are they're not hostages yet, but they can't get out of the country easily. Um, that's the consequence right now. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you asked me several questions right there. So Sorry let me, let me go that, back Jim. to the, the critical <laughs> one. No, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a fair, fair question. I've always been a believer, you know, and again, you know, I I was trained and specialized in my experiences on the military arm of our government, right? Uh, security, national security. I've always believed when things that I have to do with our national interests are security, that uh, each president actually has an opportunity to change uh, and uh, uh, actually adapt to what's happening on the ground. Uh, fairly easily. I mean, it, you know, you don't have to go back. I'm not asking them to renegotiate the NATO accords or anything like that. What I'm talking about is, is if you have an agreement that's being changed by, say, an opponent like the Taliban, uh, and they're not upholding any part of it, 
that's why we want leadership. We want people that actually have the moral courage to stand up and say, something's different here, and I'm going to change what we said we were going to do based upon the facts on the ground. Um, so I personally believe that this administration had the opportunity to do that. It did not apparently want to, and it's going to get to the last question you essentially had, is I believe that this president made a very personal decision uh, against the advice of not only its military, his military uh, uh, advisors, but I also believe that, uh, against the advice, or at least given you know the predictions, I think that uh, he may have heard that maybe didn't want to hear, uh, which is two different things, uh, from his intelligence uh, teams as well. Uh, you know, backstabbing, I won't call it backstabbing, let's call it finger pointing. This is something, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C., looking across the street here at the Pentagon, you know, it's, I mean, the Pentagon usually gets pointed, fingers pointed at it and said, you guys failed, right? Yep. Um, but this this is a bigger city, and, and uh, you know, there are politicians here, there are diplomats, there are a lot of different people that should be held accountable for whatever, both our successes uh, as well as, you know, our failures and what we do in the world. Um, my guess is here is this was a personal decision by the president. Uh, who felt publicly passionate about it. You could see some of that passion on his speech on Monday. But, uh, you know, whether it was a right decision or, or a wrong decision, I think is up for the American people uh, to vote on, or not vote, but I mean to make a decision on over time. Sure. General, and as an example of that, wasn't that when, when uh, Trump, I think two years ago next month, Two years ago in September of 2019, Trump said, we're going to have a meeting with the Taliban. People were out, you know, the left was outraged. You can't invite the Taliban to Camp David. And and then when one American service member was killed in a bombing, he said, OK, deal's off. No meeting. And and that had to send a message to the Taliban. I, I really don't understand why this president forged ahead. And especially when he must have been told by people on the ground, we can't move all this stuff out here. We can't demill it quickly. Uh, we're going to leave it in the hands of the bad guys. And he apparently said, go ahead and do it anyway. Let me ask you, because you have the insights, what is going to come out of this new country, this Emirates country, uh, under Taliban leadership, uh, the, the, you know, a terrorist organization that now has an entire country, it has a certain amount of cash, it, it has aircraft for a while, it has, uh, it has modern American weapons, um, and it apparently has an inclination toward uh, you know, Sharia law in its own country and antagonism toward the rest of the world. What are we going to see come out of there, if you can use your crystal ball, General? Yeah, I think over the next, uh, you know, for a period of time, the Taliban are going are they're, they're going to consolidate their gains, uh, both uh, politically and, and militarily on the ground inside of Afghanistan. But right now, you know, to say that they're in total control of the country, I think, is probably an over-exaggeration. You know, Afghanistan is so hard to control by anybody um, that, uh, you know, to say that they're in total control is not, uh, not true. They will consolidate. They will get, uh, Taliban, um, military, uh, you know, armed men, uh, out to, uh, every region, every city, and they'll take control over time. The second thing they're going to do is they're going to portray themselves as a much more benevolent organization, a benevolent government, a much more benevolent, uh, than they were back in uh, 1996 through 2001 before we uh, defeated them. Uh, you know, I think you're still going to see the bedrock of Sharia law, you know, its most radical form. Uh, but you're going to see pictures and uh, and words and statements that indicate that this is a new this is a new government. 
and uh, they want to play a role internationally so that they can actually get funds, so they can get money, so they can have a, t- a seat at the table at the United Nations. Um, you eventually, over time, I think we'll see them start to actually threaten one way or the other through insurgency, Pakistan, which we yeah. need to remember is a nuclear-armed state. Um, and uh, because the Pakistanis have their own Taliban problem in that country. I would say the most important thing for Americans uh, that we need to watch, and I know our intelligence agencies have refocused almost immediately uh, since uh, what had occurred on this weekend, um, on the transnational threats uh, of terrorism coming from Afghanistan, not going against the Afghan people, not going against any remaining American citizens there, but actually coming after us in our own country or in our embassies or where our citizens actually congregate abroad and are also our allies, whether they're NATO allies that participated. The book is called Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. Its author is Major General Jeffrey Schlosser. Uh, General, it is a pleasure to have you on. You are welcome back anytime, and thank you so much for your service to America. Uh, Lars, uh, thanks for having me on, and, and for all the listeners, thank an Afghan vet if you have a chance. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get, uh, I'll get back to your phone calls just a short time from now, but I have uh, the great pleasure of welcoming Hugh Gord, Hugo Gordon uh, to the program. He is the editor-in-chief of the Washington Examiner and a brand new web project called Restoring America. Mr. Gordon, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, I want to tell you something. Anybody who was paying attention to politics last summer was hearing that everything in America that was wrong, all the division, division among races, political division, riots and everything else, it was all the orange man's fault. It was Donald Trump who made it happen. Except this year, if anything, I think America is even more divided, not just inside its government, but uh, in, in among the population of the country. Uh, there's a lot more division this year than there even seemed to be last year. And uh, and the orange man is gone. Well, not gone altogether from the political scene, thank God. Uh, and Joe Biden's in charge. Uh, welcome back to the program and tell me about how restoring America might actually bring Americans, all of them, back to some patriotic value. Well, great to, great to be talking with you, Lars. Yeah, our purpose here is to point out that, the, that America is essentially undergoing a political and cultural revolution at the moment. All of its founding values are under attack relentlessly from the radical left. And we want to do our part to try and restore uh, and encourage other people to restore those values by standing up to the left. And what we did was we, we thought about what were the qualities that um, made America the envy, envy of the world and made Americans proudest to say that they were American. And, uh, you know, we came up with a number of different categories. One of them was patriotism and unity. Another was uh, faith and family. Another was community. Uh, you know, there was a range of different things that uh, Americans were really known for. And each one of these things is under attack by the left, uh, which essentially has turned itself into a force against Western civilization. That's the new Marxism of, uh, in America, whereas in Europe, the Marxism was directed primarily on an economic matters. Here in the United States, it's become much bigger, and it's a, a full cultural repudiation of Western civilization. And what we want to do is to 
draw attention to that with our reporting, with our commentary, with videos. And so we're launching this project, Restoring America. And uh, it's going to be our own writers. It's going to be writers, uh, you know, senior politicians. And we're going to sustain this day after day, month after month, at least through the coming year. Well, I'm glad to hear it. But let me throw one thing at you. And uh, the first thing that occurs to me is when you say, Americans should be patriotic, that they should uh, say this is a great country. It's a, an exceptional country. I know Barack Obama didn't believe that. I, I don't know whether Joe Biden believes it or not. But I and when people say why, I say because we're the only country on Earth that says your rights come from God and not from government. And that all government has is a thing called the Constitution that says the government is not allowed to take away your rights. Uh, and, and that if you say be patriotic, be proud of your country and the values it represents, I would expect the first response from the left would be, no, the place is systemically and fatally racist to its core, that it's built into the baked into the cake uh, and that there's there's nothing you can do about it. So they would say we can't be proud of a place that's systemically racist. I don't agree with that. But when when the other side says that, what do you say back, Hugo? Well, the, the first thing to say is that a country that is systemically racist doesn't go to civil war, go, uh, you know, to fight for freedom and unity, to end, to make itself live up to its ideals better. Throughout our history and throughout the history of, I mean, of people everywhere, no one has ever lived fully up to their ideals. So this isn't about whitewashing our history, but it is about not propagandizing our children and not telling them that this country is irredeemably and systemically racist. That is a flat-out lie, and it's time for the great majority of people who know that it's a flat-out lie and who know that this is a good and great country simply to re- reject that accusation. What, one, of the, one of the great things that is really going to be required if this country, you know, as Ben Franklin said, it takes, you know, it, 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 you know it, it, it's going to be difficult to retain the republic, it's one of the great things that is required is the courage of ordinary people to realize that they are in charge and that they, a great future is there for the taking, but they have to be strong enough, they have to be courageous enough simply to stand up against the left-wing onslaught, to speak the truth without embarrassment and reject the accusations. Uh, you know, sure, anyone who tries to restore America is going to be confronted by those people who actually wish to destroy it and pull it down. So one of the things that we can be absolutely positive about is that there's going to be resistance and people will mock, people will, uh, you know, decry what we're trying to do. One of the, 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 but the basic thing that we need is to be uh, resolute, to, be, to, to have whatever courage it takes to speak the truth and say that it is they who are wrong, it is they who have this country completely wrong. I'm talking to Hugo Gurdon, who is editor-in-chief of the Washington Examiner and the architect behind a new web project called Restoring America to Unify Americans by Promoting Patriotic Values. I want to ask you about a development that, that really went public yesterday where the Attorney General of the United States, you know, an arm of the government that's supposed to serve the public, has now effectively announced, if you stand up for those patriotic values and you do the most ordinary thing, you go to your local school board meeting and perhaps in a loud voice, perhaps even in tempered words or rude words, you say, you can't do this to my kids. You can't teach my kids that if they have white skin, they're oppressors. If they have brown or black skin, not much is expected of them because they are the oppressed. That if you do that, you're going to have the FBI and the DOJ after you. This is where the government is actually telling people, don't stand up and object to this or you will be on our list. 
Yeah, this is one of the most outrageous things that um, I've heard for a while. The idea that the power of the uh, federal government, its investigators, its, its uh, you know, part of the national security apparatus, would be turned against parents for having the temerity to insist that they are in charge of their children's upbringing and they have a considerable say, in fact, what should be a decisive say in what their children are taught, um, is, is, is it's quite extraordinary. The, um, what, you know, there, are, there are a number of things. For example, the children are being propagandized with critical race theory. Yep. Uh, in their schools. Parents don't want this. They know it's, it's an outright lie. What it does is teach white children that they are, no matter what they do, no matter about the content of their character, because they are white, they are oppressors. Critical race theory teaches blacks that they are the oppressed, and it, it, it has got nothing to do with the content of people's characters. The, the foundation of critical race theory is that Society and our culture has to be skewed so as to give advantages to, to sort of a sort of reverse racism. Uh, Hugo Gurdon is Indeed. editor in chief of the Washington Examiner, the architect behind Restoring America. You're going to want to check it out. Mr. Gurdon, thank you so much. And I couldn't disagree with any word you said today. And I hope Americans take a message from this and say, I'm going to become more involved in my local government, not less. And I'm not going to be intimidated when people like uh, Merrick Garland or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris use the uh, mechanisms of government to try to silence their own citizens. Hugo, thank you very much. I'll look forward to talking to you again. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get back to phone calls and all that a bit later. As you know, naysayers go to the head of the line on this show. So if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's at 866-439-5277. You can remember that is 866-HEY-LARS. My email is almost as easy, talk at LarsLarson.com. And I have the great pleasure of bringing back on the program a man who's brought so much education and insight to this program, Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. Uh, Dr. Hansen, it's a pleasure to have on a man who is both a, uh, a professor of the classics, but also a farmer, uh, because you, you actually have your hands in the dirt, unlike so many of the elites at some of the big uh, universities. Thank you for having me, Lars. I appreciate it. Now, tell me about this. Before we get into talking about the specifics of The Dying Citizen, your newest book, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, would you mind sharing with my audience how well the book is doing and then mysteriously something happened to it at Amazon. Would you mind describing that, please? Yeah, I mean, I, they asked me to go to New York, and I, I did 12 hours of publicity, and I think the book is very timely, although it wasn't written right after the Biden administration. A lot of things that predicted were borne out by the, this chaos we're watching and explains why this chaos is here. But so the, the sec, first day was last Tuesday, a week ago today, and the book just took off. It was number two within a few hours of release. And all of a sudden, you know, the media was besieged. And then 24 hours later, this little thing popped up on Amazon. It said, soon to be in stock, and you couldn't get the book. You could order it. And, of course, then my publisher and agent, everybody said, what's going on? They've got plenty of copies. And then they were told, well, for rankings or degrees of success, it's only the amount, the amount of books are shipped, not purchased. So there was this huge gap from people ordering the book, even though they couldn't get it right away, and what was recorded as the book's progress because they were not shipping the book. 
So the rankings started to drop because even though they were getting more and more orders every day, they were shipping few to the point within 48 hours, they were shipping none. And so that was kind of, and we're still in that situation and nobody can figure out why that happened. Well, I'm going to ask you, do you think it's deliberate on the part of Amazon saying we can't let a book like this by a guy like that, Dr. Victor Davis Hanson, uh, you know, who belies the stereotype and doctor forgive me this is meant in in the spirit in which it's offered an awful lot of the left says oh all the people who believe these other ideas and who don't like what president biden and kamala harris are doing to the country they're uneducated they are uh trailer park trash they're rednecks uh which actually is a compliment in my circles but uh but but you know but it can't be anybody smart and then along comes dr victor davis hansen with the kind of resume you've got and they can't say this is all just a bunch of dummies uh, that are opposing what we're doing. I don't know. I, I can't make I, I just know that I can tell you that it's never happened to me before. And I can tell you my agent, who's very, very sophisticated, he's been around for 30 years where he cannot explain it. And I know that the publisher, Basic Books, has given them enormous amounts of books. And I don't know if they were overwhelmed with their first initial orders or what happened, supply chain, but I know that they're not telling us. And I, I, I just am baffled. But all I can tell you is that I, you will get the book if you order it. It's just that for purposes of ranking and perceptions of the book's success, New York Times or Amazon's ranking, they're only based on the actual numbers of shipped books, not purchased books, and they're not shipping them even though they're at their disposal. And, no, and we're trying to find out. It's taken a week, but you could, they only ship them for 36 hours. I just think so this, is, I, this is a piece of data that people ought to take into account, that a company like Amazon that began by selling books and now sells everything, that ships, I don't know, hundreds of millions of items every week, is suddenly incapable of managing a, the sale of a book. Uh, or yeah, saying we, I, I we just can't get them out the door. What what the heck? I, that one just that one doesn't smell right, Doctor. No, I my best friend Shelby Steele at the Hoover. He had a great uh, film on documentary on Ferguson, and they would not sell it for three weeks. And then the initial, then they relented, and then so I think that they do manipulate. I don't know if I can prove it, but it's something strange. I've written twenty four books. This has never happened. I've never had more interest in a book. To tell you the truth, I've written some books that have been on the New York Times bestseller, but never have I had such an interest in this book because it, it's kind of uncanny. I didn't know that that when I finished it in January, it was going to fit and predict what's happening because of the dying citizen. But, and one very quickly thing, Lars, yes, I sir. think that's a really good point you made about uh, working people. I, I was given either a curse or a benefit of working on a farm and then going to Stanford back and forth the last few years. And I can tell you that as somebody who farmed full-time and lives now with people, there's no comparison in the degree of intelligence and capability required for a guy to get on a tractor or to run a a business and labor and markets versus a tenured academic like myself. I can tell you I did both. And the people that I worked with, I see that run a 7-Eleven and have to keep inventory in their head or a long-term trucker. It has that muscular and cerebral demands on it compared to a guy who's got their summers off as a teacher. I, I just there's no comparison. So I've always had a very different. I agree with you, but 
my normal is that I've been around academics and I'm not impressed either with their training or intelligence, at least in comparison, if I could stereotype and generalize with the kind of self-independent middle-class citizen. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book as sort of a homage to those people. Dr. Hansen is the author most recently of The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalism Are Destroying the Idea of America. Well, Doctor, I think one of the reasons this is so important, uh, we'll get into the chaos, we'll get into the book, but it's important because you get memes like the one that was pushed out, why the people who are hesitant about taking the vaccine, they're dummies, they're generally older, they're generally Trump fans, and they're generally uneducated. And then I saw some, I think it was Pew Research, where they actually went out and did polls and found out the, the most resistant class by age was younger people, 18 to 35, and the most resistant by education were PhDs, strangely enough. And, and, and I remember thinking, well, that, that completely blows up the entire narrative that the only people who aren't accepting this are dummies. And now we're seeing the evidence in doctors, nurses, airline pilots, police officers, paramedics. I mean, some really, you know, substantial people with substantial skills who are saying, I'm not crazy about this idea and don't make me do it. This is part of the chaos you've referred to, isn't it? It is. And I think that the left thought that because they control, as I said in the book, they control Silicon Valley, public radio, public TV, television, Hollywood, entertainment, professional sports, Silicon Valley, the media, et cetera, et cetera, universities K through 12, that they didn't need to have a majority of the citizens, that they don't care if they're losing by a large margin the polling on uh, the border or critical race theory or stagflationary policies or Afghanistan. They just feel, you know what, we have so many institutions and we have so many levers of influence and power and money that we don't care anymore. Because they are the party of big money now, not the Republicans anymore. And uh, I think they're shocked that these school board people, that these pilots, and all of a sudden there are people in the Democratic Party, the old Democratic Party that doesn't exist anymore, that are saying to these hardcore Jacobin revolutionary Bolsheviks, hey, you guys, you're taking us with you right over the cliff because you've, you've, you've woke, woken a sleeping dragon. And the majority of Americans believe 1776 was the founding. Columbus was a good person. Indigenous people are risking their lives to leave indigenous areas to cross the border for a completely different paradigm of constitutional government, individual freedom, free market capitalism. That's just the facts. And so I think there's a reconciliation. There's a sort of, uh, you know, reckoning that's going on now. And I think if everybody... Gets, keeps informed and keeps aware, there's going to be the biggest uh, pushback in this midterm we've ever seen, much more than 2010 or 1994. I'm talking to Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, as he said, a couple of dozen books to his credit on everything from Mexifornia to uh, histories of the Peloponnesian War, and most recently, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization. I said globalism. We'll be back in just a moment. We'll get to your phone calls and emails and all that a bit later. Uh, it is such a pleasure to have Victor Davis Hansen with me, and uh, we'll be returning in a moment on The Lars Larson Show.
You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad to get your emails and phone calls. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll, and believe me, we're going to get that to be a getter poll the minute getter has the technology to do it. So far, though, it's a a Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. And if you want to vote on my website to avoid the Jack Dorsey censorship, just go to LarsLarson.com. I have the great pleasure of talking to a man I so admire, Victor Davis Hanson, university professor of the classics, the author of a couple of dozen books, uh, most recently, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Doctor, that's my, uh, that's my uh, Bernice in the, in the background. He hangs out in the studio with me. He's Sir Winston <laughs> Churchill, uh, but he's sometimes... Uh, frustrated when people come you know to the studio and he wants to go out and say hi um i want to ask you let's start you touched on it a bit in the last uh segment uh, about what is the idea of america because there are now perhaps i mean probably a, a thousand ideas but the main ideas those that i believe in that you believe in of an america that is a good america an aspirational america that wrote a constitution that had the unique idea of, of rights given by God, not by granted by a generous government. And then we have an, uh, an America that is somehow based in slavery and, and evil. Uh, and, and those are two very different Americas. Let's talk about why the left, why these progressive elites so badly want to destroy the kind of idea that you and I believe in. Well, I think they believe in socialism and a quality of result, which they've renamed equity, and that's all going to be adjudicated by people like Nancy Pelosi from her Napa estate worth $100 million or Oprah worth, you know, a billion dollars or the Obamas or uh, Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. This elite that feels that they're so morally superior to everybody, they're not subject to the consequences of this crazy ideology they're inflicting on other people. And you're absolutely right that our founders understood that we weren't perfect. We didn't have to be perfect to be better than the alternative. And that was clear from the very beginning. They understood slavery was a problem. They didn't want to go to a civil war right after fighting the British, and they had to make compromises. But it was a self-correcting constitution. It was the Bill of Rights. It was a freedom of expression. There was constitutional remedies. There were amendments. So they understood that that times change, even though human nature did not. And they gave us this wonderful framework, and it's made the most prosperous, free, successful nation in the history of civilization. But some people don't like it, and they've never liked it because they're out of power, or they feel that they're smarter than other people, they're more moral, nobody listens to them, and they're very angry. And so they always try to wage a top-down revolution. And this is what it is. This is Phyllis Queller, BLM co-founder, self-prescribed Marxist, you know, four homes now, Topaga Canyon, all-white neighborhood. And that's supposed to be a revolutionary fervor. Or Professor Kendi charging $20,000 for a Zoom hour. He's the CRT the author, effectively, or yeah. architect. So this, this is not average day people. Most people want to get along. They don't I live in a mostly a Mexican-American community. I can tell you that most people do not judge you on the superficial appearance of yourself. They're into the American ideal of the melting pot, and we all have a common ideal. 
But the left's message is not polling well. It never did. So they have two alternatives, Lars. They either have to change the demography of letting in 2 million people this fiscal year so that we are all, almost up to 45 million people who were not born in the United States that are in the country, either legally or illegally. 27% of the state was not born. That makes it very hard to assimilate and integrate or intermarry into the body politic when the host doesn't teach them American civics. And then the other thing is they, they think, you know what? This electoral college does not work anymore for us. Huh. A nine-person Supreme Court doesn't work for us. The filibuster does not work for us on the left. The national uh, constitution that says the states are primarily responsible for national election balloting does not work for us. A 50-state union does not work. So we're just going to change it all and call anybody who objects a racist. And that's what they're up to because they have no confidence in their message. And they know that most people, without a crisis— and remember, that's what Rahm Emanuel never let a serious crisis go to war. That's what Gavin Newsom said as soon as he locked us down. This is a chance during the lockdown to create a more progressive, more pro- progressive capitalism, he said. And Hillary Clinton said this is our final and best chance to get one payer health care. They all have been saying that. And under normal times, no one would want to, to enlist in that cause. But now... When the people are locked down, you have a, a self-created recession, this misinformation, and terror about the, the, the COVID and uh, the quote-unquote science being abused for political reasons. That's what they want, and they want to change the system, and they want to change even the demography of the country. Professor Victor Davis Hanson is the author most recently of The Dying Citizen, a bestseller, uh, but get Amazon to admit that today. How progressive elites, tribalism, and globalization are destroying the idea of America. Let me ask you this, Professor. You referred in the last segment to the chaos that's going on right now. So based on what you've just said about this fervor on the left to change a system that is unique and exceptional on the planet, affords liberties that can't be taken away because they were granted to us by God. And I'll quote JFK on that, too, who said the revolutionary idea in his inaugural uh, that that our our, our rights come from God and not from the generosity of government. Um, How much of this chaos is deliberate and how much of it is incompetence where they say, if we're going to make these changes, we can't get them through the courts or the legislature or any other way. We can't get them by getting the agreement of the people. So we will create enough chaos that in the midst of that chaos, we can invent institutions like paying people not to work when America needs 11 million workers right now. And and that will create the change we've been seeking that can't we can't get through the regular means of government. You know, that's that's the sixty four thousand dollar question, Lars. I get asked that, and I'm sure you do. I get asked that 10 times a day in calls and emails. People say, nobody could be this stupid to create this chaos, these crazy ideas of printing new money and thinking it's going to give prosperity and calling it new monetary theory. Is this deliberate, or are they just that stupid and incompetent? And I think what maybe we could split the difference is I think they came in thinking Donald Trump is unpopular. He's controversial. COVID did him in. Now there's a referendum on us, even though there wasn't. It was 50-50 in the Senate, and they lost lost in the last midterm House seats. But nevertheless, they convinced themselves that they had the power and they had this utopian dream. And then when they started to enact it, it blew up in their face, whether Afghanistan or the border, and everybody didn't like it. And now their attitude is – 
okay, it didn't work. They didn't appreciate our, our genius, but we're going to push this stuff through because we got two more years at least before Joe Biden is out and maybe a year and a half until a year until the next midterm. And we're going to try to get these edicts and executive orders and uh, platforms and policies institutionalized or at least have them do so much damage that, you know, you can't recover. So we're just going to stop the wall and let the stuff rot right there. You know, we paid for it. And then you'll have to do that. We're going to have catch and release. We're going to alienate the South American, Central American, Mexican governments in a way that we didn't do before. Or we're just going to, you know, get rid of deterrence. We're just going to get out of Afghanistan and that's it. We don't care. Or we're going to have so many uh, equity, inclusion, diversity advisors in every university try to get rid of them. I think that's where they are now. I'm not sure they started out that way, but they've doubled down. And they know that they're not going to get a public um, approval or referendum on what they've done. And their time is short and they're going to cause as much chaos as they can now. And the chaos is is I don't I don't know of a way to stop a lot of it. Uh, We're going to continue this conversation in a moment. His book is called The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. We'll be back in just a moment. Then we'll get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. Email talk at LarsLarson.com and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It is a pleasure to be with you and to have with me Dr. Victor Davis Hanson, the author of two dozen books, including most recently, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. So I I guess, Doc, uh, let me ask you something. You have to, to write about what the other side is doing, uh, the left, the progressives are doing, you have to get into their heads a little bit how do they how do they see the end game of this if you drive america into the dust you make energy expensive you make labor expensive you make a regulatory environment that makes doing business here unattractive you push business and jobs and products to the other side of the ocean and and then you raise taxes dramatically pushing them further at, at that point do they not see that this drives america toward a fiscal collapse in government a financial collapse of the economy uh, the collapse of of people and their lives, and 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 I don't see how that ends well. Do, do you see how it they does, see no, it I, ending I well? If, and I I try to read what they're promoting, whether it's on the environment or the economy or on racially. I think their their idea is that we're all eventually going to live in high rises with sort of substandard high speed rail, which is a failure here, or mass transit. And then we're going to be, you know, densely packed with no lawns. And we're going to have sort of this elite that lives in, you know, on the Cape or in Beverly Hills that runs things. And then we're going to be sort of like when you go to Milan or uh, Palermo or Athens, when you see how people in Europe live. And we're going to have high taxes. We have them now, but even a value-added tax, et cetera, et cetera. And we're all going to cram into a little electric car once in a while if we're lucky. And it's all going to be orchestrated by these puppeteers that are not going to have to do what we do. And that's kind of like what I'm just describing what if somebody lived in Europe for three years is. So if you were a European and you said, you know what, I don't like what I'm doing. I'm going to go out and buy this lot and build a big hotel and run it the way I want, or I'm going to make a private university. It's going to be impossible to do that. And so I think that's what they look at. And they say, you know what, they're the successful people, not us. 
and they're completely out of touch because they where is this coming from it's coming from the schools of journalism the schools of education the academic departments and these people are not out with the real people and they don't you know if you ask them to how do you run a chainsaw or have you ever driven a truck or you, they don't have those real life experiences. They've always been given a guaranteed tenure or a guaranteed federal job, or they've always been bragged that they went to Harvard or Yale or they have an MD, JD, PhD, MA, MBA after their name. And they're not, they're, they don't know about what America really is, that it's, it's the arena where people are not judged on their quote unquote education or their appearance, but what they actually do. And so that's what I think that scares them too. I think they're, they, when they meet this confident America that says, you know what, we've got tanker ships all the way out to the horizon. <laughs> all you got to do is just cut off the money and tell people to go back to work and we'll, by golly, we'll get this thing cleared out in a week. Just don't let, just leave us alone. We know what we're doing. And that type of can-do idea is just what frightens them. So they try to suppress it all the time and make fun of it. And that's that's why you have these bizarre, you remember the, the middle-class voter, this bizarre vocabulary? It started with Obama at Clingers, and it was deplorables and irredeemables. Yep. And then uh, Biden gave us chumps and dregs. They have a contempt for the middle class. I think they think it lacks the sophistication of the wealthy and the romance of the poor or something. It's just... It's bizarre how they hate middle-class people. That's one thing I've taken from both the research of this book and, and then being around a lot of them in academic life. They just do not like the middle class. No, they don't, and, and, and I guess they don't absorb the lesson that an awful lot of us say, fine, call me a deplorable. I'll put, I'll put it on the front of my hoodie or I'll put it on the back of my T-shirt <laughs> and I'll be proud, you know, because I saw a, a group that I – ran into in high school, uh, which I admired from a distance, very quiet group called the Odd Fellows. And you go, how'd they get that name? I said, they started doing things that were different in England about 400 years ago. And people yeah. said, oh, these are odd fellows. They go out and help their neighbors when they're in trouble and, and they do good charitable acts. And so they said, okay, you're going to call us odd fellows? We'll become the International Order of Odd Fellows. And they, right. and they wore it as a badge of honor. And American deplorables do the same thing. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why, what is the left's reaction to it? No sooner do they do that and they say, you're engaging in hate speech. We're going to call the <laughs> FBI on you, you disruptive parents, or you're racist, or you're homophobic. Oh, you don't like a bisexual Superman? You're a homophobe. And so it, it, they attack the taste, they attack the culture of the middle class because it's so vibrant and confident. And everybody, everybody in the world looks at this middle class, just what Alex, Alexis de Tocqueville said, you give a person property and the freedom to make a business or to farm, and you have a bulwark against government. He said that, and revolution. We've never had, a, except for the Civil War, we've never had a revolutionary movement. What's scary, Lars, is that in the 60s, kids, protesters, it was kind of a, an amateur kind of, I think it was more about not going to Vietnam or whatever it was, but they threw rocks at the Pentagon. They stormed the president's office. They went to the local DA and threw eggs at the courthouse. Today, they're in the courthouse. They're running the Pentagon. They are the college president. And, and you know, yesterday I went into a local Walmart. The per capita income in my community is $16,000. It's mostly Mexican-American. And I went into Walmart, and there was whole swaths bars of empty shelving because the port of Los Angeles is closed. 
And you should have heard what people said. This one woman with a very thick accent said, this is not America, Victor. I knew her. This is not America. You can't buy things. They're not here anymore. And then I went to get gas. It's four ninety a gallon in California. Wow. And they have a limit at $100. And somebody said, you know, I got a big brand new Ford pickup. And I have to stop every three hours because I have to. It's, it, they stop you because the gas is so expensive, and a hundred dollars doesn't get you many gas to fill up my truck. This is not. And so people, at, economically, culturally, and when they look at professional sports and they see people not even wanting to salute or stand for the national anthem, it's just. And they read about all this. It's starting to coalesce, and there's starting to be a big pushback. And I don't think the left because they're so isolated in the academy or the corporate boardroom or Wall Street. They have any idea of the dragon they poked. And I, I and I think it's going to and it's going to be peaceful and it's going to be massive and it's going yep. to be uh, political. And the more that they try to repress it and demonize it and make fun of people, the, the more it's going to turn out poorly for them. The book is called The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Its author is Dr. Victor Davis Hanson. Doctor, it is such a pleasure. I'll look forward to the next time we have you on. And I always get a lot of response from my audience. They love what you write. They love what you have to say and that you have the guts as somebody in, uh, in, in on the academic side of things to actually say the things that, that they understand are the real ideas about protecting this country. Thank you so very much. Well, thank you. Appreciate it is it. a pleasure to be with you. We'll be back in just a moment. You've got the Lars Larson Show.